Hello, underreported listeners. I'm Nicholas Lemon. Thanks for joining our show. This week, we are welcoming John B. Judas, whose upcoming book is The Socialist Awakening, What's Different Now About the Left? Only five years ago, most of us still believed what we had been taught in school about socialism, that it had peaked in popularity in the 1912 presidential election and was no longer a factor in American politics. Then came Bernie Sanders' two presidential campaigns, along with socialist surges in the United Kingdom and elsewhere in Europe, and the emergence of significant organizations and younger political stars like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It turns out that socialism has a mass following. John Judas, himself a veteran of socialist movements, has brought out a book with Columbia Global Reports during each of the last three national political seasons, the populist explosion in 2016, the nationalist revival in 2018, and now the socialist awakening. Together, these books chart the rise during the second decade of the 20th century of a new and unexpected political mood produced by widespread dissatisfaction with the results of the free market policies that emerged in the late 20th century, especially after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Today's socialism, Judas argues, is best understood not as a program for government ownership of business enterprises, but as a broader youth-based movement that is impatient with the mainstream politics of recent decades and willing to experiment with a lot of ambitious new policies, Medicare for all, the Green New Deal, free college, and many more. It has already succeeded in pushing Joe Biden, the Democratic presidential nominee, farther to the left than he has ever been in his long career. All over the country, the streets are full of protesters in unprecedented numbers. John's new book, The Socialist Awakening, is an indispensable guide to this political moment. John, thank you for joining us on Zoom today. How are you and where are you calling from? I'm in uh, Silver Spring, Maryland, and uh, as I've done from for, for 40 years, I'm working at home, but I'm feeling completely trapped. <laughs> um, still playing tennis, though. Yeah, four times a week, but that's it. That's about all my socialized outdoors. And I, I want to congratulate you on being our first third-time author at Columbia Global Reports. Um, we have published uh, one author twice, all of our other authors once, and you three times. So that's it, nice my, my pleasure. You know, you've done better by me than uh, the uh, so-called commercial publishers did. So, Right. Well, thanks. So I know that you, from an early age, would have called yourself a socialist. I don't know if uh, you ever, uh, if you still do, we'll get into that, but um, this will be in the range of truth and you can correct me. You have been to many, many socialist meetings in your day and belong to many socialist organizations and written for socialist publications in your day. And of all of them, the maximum audience would have been 5,000 or something. So suddenly there's this explosion and everybody's a socialist. What happened? Well, um, I actually left the socialist 
organized socialist left in about late 1976 uh, to become a more writer, journalist, observer, uh, partly because I thought at the time that the kind of socialism I believed in, which was a orthodox Marxist idea of uh, government planning of industry, uh, uh, take over, no, no, really no, no private industry, very little uh, role for markets. Uh, it just didn't make sense. I couldn't picture what the United States would be like. Uh, so there was a long period where uh, I was, uh, I, I would have called myself sort of a Herbert Crowley progressive. I worked for the New Republic, so that was appropriate. He was the founder. Uh, but in the 90s, after uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, I began to rethink things, uh, partly under the influence of some other people, and to think of socialism not as a separate stage in history that was going to come after capitalism, uh, but as something that was occurring within capitalism itself as uh, public institutions that uh, that bore the stamp of the public interest rather than private interest took root um, as the government itself assumed more responsibility for the economy. So I began to rethink things. And I, you know, I wrote some theoretical uh, essays and things like that along the, along the line, but it was really Bernie Sanders' campaign. And I think this is true for a lot of older socialists that made me think for the first time that it was could be a practical politics, that people could call themselves a democratic socialist and not speak to an audience of, you know, not even 5,000, but we're talking maybe 500, or in the case of some of these groups, 50 people. So uh, that was really for me, and I think for a lot of older, older socialists, uh, an awakening, a feeling that something was possible that hadn't been possible before. But for the kids, uh, even before Sanders, uh, the younger generation that wasn't brought up in, during the Cold War era and didn't identify uh, socialism with the Soviet Union, um, started to think, uh, and I think what the key thing was, they started to be skeptical of capitalism and the Great Recession did that, climate change, and once skeptical of that, what's the alternative? And so they began to think of socialism, but it wasn't the socialism of the Soviet Union or even the socialism I had thought of in the 60s, a kind of orthodox Marxism. It was much more, uh, maybe even a throwback to the 19th century, stressing cooperation, uh, democracy, uh, yes, public control, but not necessarily complete public control of all industry. There would still be markets. So, you know, Medicare for all, free education, transportation, things like that would become much more under public uh, control. So, uh, again, I think that for them, you begin to see even, you know, 2010 with Occupy Wall Street, the, the, the germs of a new kind of socialism. But for older, older people like me, you know, the, it starts to be, you know, we, we revive, but we revive with, um, with San, especially with the Sanders campaign. Let's talk for a minute just conceptually. Where is the border between what you're calling socialism for purposes of this book and this conversation and sort of conventional Democratic Party liberalism? I, I think that there is no clear border. 
And uh, that, that's part of the trick. I mean, in America, we have really not had a viable public socialism since uh, 1917 or so. And uh, the rise of the Communist Party and the identification of socialism uh, with the Soviet Union is popular among intellectuals, but not, uh, no, you know, no pol politician, except maybe in a few boroughs of New York, would call themselves a socialist and hope to get elected to anything. But uh, we still have people who, in the terms I'm describing, uh, espouse kinds of socialist politics. And, you know, Bernie Sanders uh, cites Roosevelt's uh, uh, second bill of rights. Uh, everybody should have a job, health care for all. Again, I think that that's, you see there again, the germs of, of an American socialism arising within uh, capitalism. And if you look at politicians now, if you look at the the House Progressive Caucus, which is has you know 90 plus members. You look at Sherrod Brown, Elizabeth Warren. Um, there in my book, I call them shadow socialists because again, there isn't a hell of a lot of difference between them and let's say Bernie Sanders or Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, but they don't call themselves socialists. So so there is a a, a fuzzy line. Um, so. I assume, like everybody else, you were surprised by Bernie Sanders' success and influence, right? In 2016, I was beyond surprised. <laughs> so as you look back, is it just the factors you stated, or what made that happen? Well, I, I, again, I think if you look at the vote, at Bernie Sanders' vote, he gets in 2016, more votes among 18 to 29 year olds than Trump and Hillary Clinton combined in the primaries. That's, that's an amazing figure. So uh, again, I think I, I did not realize this was happening among young people in America. And that was a key thing that the, he appealed to, the, the, the free college stuff, the student debt, uh, the climate change, Medicare for all, because again, these are kids uh, who don't necessarily have these kind of lifetime jobs that they can look forward to. It's not like the America of the 1950s anymore. And they feel a kind of insecurity and anxiety that we didn't feel, even in the 60s, we weren't worried about jobs. I mean, we're worried about the war, or racial injustice, or things like that. So again, I think that he, he struck a chord with that younger generation in a way that other Democrats like Hillary Clinton, who was talking more about, again, the identity politics, very complicated, uh, you know, in some case, very commendable economic programs, but just to us talking past that whole generation. Um, so this year, right now, as, the, as your book is coming out, um, you know, and you, some of this may be speculation, some of it may not be, but um, it is felt that Biden made peace with Bernie in 2020 much more effectively than Hillary made peace with Bernie in 2016. Um, I don't know any of the details of that, but uh, Bernie seems more supportive. And then, you know, there was an announcement some time ago that I'm sure you saw where Biden said, I'm announcing my key policy advisors. And he said publicly, these are the ones I'm putting on the team and these are the ones Bernie put on the team. 
so it seemed like they cut some kind of deal like that. Um, and then on, on many of the issues you mentioned, Biden to me reads as further to the left than any Democratic nominee in my adult lifetime. Um, and, and to the left of where he used to be. Um, what do you think of all of the above? Am I, am I stating the situation correctly? I'm not sure. I'm not as optimistic. I, I, I think one of the reasons, again, that I think Sanders is, is uh, supporting Biden enthusiastically this year in a way that he did not support Hillary Clinton is that we really recognize now how dangerous Trump is. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're not, you know, I, I thought myself that after Trump would get elected, he'd sort of sand off the rough edges, the bigotry, the Mexican judges, and you know, the rapists, all that stuff, and he would be more presidential. But he's, he's been a nightmare for the country, and I think Sanders recognizes that, and that's the key reason. Uh, Biden, you know, he had these working groups and he had Sanders people and his people and, and they were co-chairs of it uh, and they had proposals. And I, I agree that his, his program is somewhat to the left, uh, especially on environmental stuff of where Democrats have been. But if you look at things like the health care and the public option, he's very skittish about it. He did not mention the public option, for instance, in his uh, uh, acceptance speech. I thought that that was, uh, that, that was a conspicuous omission. And I, I know that he's under pressure from the health care industry, one of his biggest donors during the primary uh, uh, not to support that. So we, we have to see really what's going to happen if he's elected. Uh, but, you, you know, again, God help us if he's not. Yeah, and, and, and some of this will also depend on how the House and Senate races go. Exactly, exactly. Gonna... And they'll be, they will be to the left, right. I would say, as a, you know, as a whole. Will, he, will they be? Yeah. Um, so you're not confident in predicting what kind of program Biden will propose and whether, you know, how seriously should we take this rhetoric of this is going to be like 1933 when FDR took office in terms of the level of, of change and direction of change? I think what Biden will do is he will reinsert the importance of science. He'll get rid of a lot of those clowns out of the, out of the agencies, and he will present an equitable and as well as ambitious approach to getting rid of the virus. That's all important. I think that he'll do that for sure. He won't be the first socialist president. No, no, no. I I don't think so. And you, you know, again, on the environment, you'll get back the regulations. Uh, foreign policy, you'll go back to the Iran deal. Um, so again, yeah, Im improvements. Uh, the, the part again of Trump that I think that was potentially positive, but that gets completely mired in his own corruption and equivocation is the uh, economic patriotism. Uh, the idea that we should make a lot of things here that we don't, don't make. And Biden has endorsed that. He gave a speech in Warren, Michigan, that was very strong on those issues, that he was going to encourage companies to stay here. He wasn't going to any, any more give in kinds of incentives for companies to uh, produce 
abroad. So, and that's important for rebuilding a lot, a lot of the country. I think he might do that stuff. I think, and uh, again, I think on that stuff, I think Trump has largely been a fake. And you can look at the TikTok deal today. Uh, I don't know whether he's going to approve it, but it's a completely phony deal. The uh, Chinese basically still will have control of the company. Uh, so uh, a lot of the stuff with Trump has just been smoke and mirrors. But, but again, I think Biden, I think that was also the influence of Warren, uh, has been very strong on that idea. And, and I think that he'll be, uh, I, again, I think on unions, uh, Biden will be uh, good. But where it's uh, competing really with private industry and healthcare and stuff, uh, financial regulation, I'm just not sure. Those people are very important to his, uh, to his donor class. The movement itself, where do you think it will go? I mean, presumably Bernie Sanders will not run for president again in 2024, although he could. But let's say he doesn't. Uh, and let's say Biden is elected and nobody has really accused uh, Kamala Harris of being a socialist. So does it all dissipate or does it get carried on by AOC or um, what, what, what do you foresee? I, I wish I had a good answer for that. I don't. I think it will chug along. And again, I look for the most progress, not from explicit socialists, but from these kind of shadow socialists in Congress uh, and around the country. Uh, the the, the, the self-identists are mostly strong in the big metro areas in college towns. And there's, you know, we're gonna have a new socialist uh, from New York, uh, Jamal Bowman is, is gonna be, join AOC in the, in the uh, socialist caucus of three or four. So uh, that's where I would really expect the growth to go. And then among the young, you have this continuing interest in, in socialism. You have the Democratic Socialists of America. Again, you know, an organization that could grow over the years, but we'll have to see. I really don't know. We have a two party system in this country. So if we had a multi-party system, you might have a socialist party now emerging within the AOC uh, Sanders wing of the party, uh, you know, with maybe 15 or 20% of the vote and a part of a coalition, but we don't have that. So, so in America, it really almost takes a crisis for uh, a politics like that to crystallize and get a new name. So we're, again, I'm in a, I can't, I can't predict. Now, you spoke earlier about identity politics. Um, I happen to know a few young people, and uh, most of the ones I know, or many of the ones I know, if you ask them, are you a socialist, they'd say, absolutely, yes. And, and then you say, why are you a socialist? And they'd say, because I believe in transgender rights. That is, in my lived experience, younger generation socialists, it's very hard to disaggregate identity politics and socialism, even as they identify with socialism. Do those things naturally go together? Are they two separate things? Are they the same thing? How does that work out? Well, I, I think again, it appeals to our deeper ideas of equality among people. And I think that that's the, that's the link that uh, between transgender rights, racial justice, um, all these issues, um, 
again, just justice for uh, immigrants who come to the country, even if they come illegally. Um, I think that that's the that's the thing that brings them together. That uh, that there's a basic feeling about equality that socialists respect and the capitalists don't. Anyway, I think that that's the I think that's why a lot of these kids would identify immediately with uh, socialism, with something like transgender rights or racial justice. And you see that kind of too in the protest. I see these people wearing t-shirts against the system. In other words, they're protesting uh, Floyd or, you know, the kill, killing of somebody in Atlanta, but they have shirts that say they're against the system. And again, the system is something broader. It's not just it's not just racism. So there is a there is a connection, but the problem we've had on, on the American left is that when there isn't a kind of comprehensive leadership, an adult leadership that tries to bring it together, each of the separate identity groups tends to radicalize in in the absence of a greater ra radicalism. So you get not just reform the police, but you know, with the democratic socialists want to abolish the police, a, a demand that might make sense in four zip codes of the country, but, and actually very rich areas, but which uh, for a lot of areas just raises immense fears of pu public sa safety. Uh, and, you know, again, again, with gender rights, I think you get the same kind of thing that just freaks people out when kids start talking about, well, we're not going to, we're going to eliminate gender designations altogether. There isn't really any such thing as a man or a woman. So when they're taken to extremes, then you get in, then you get into problems. Can you talk a little about what you see happening in, in Britain and, and Europe uh, and the rise of socialism there, if, if it's happening? Well, in Britain, we, Britain in many ways is similar to the United States because the Corbyn uh, movement within the uh, uh, Labor Party, uh, there was a group called Momentum that uh, became the, the spearhead of uh, Cor Corbyn's uh, leadership in the party was strongly based in um, big metro areas, London in particular, and, and in university towns. Uh, and it was estranged to some extent from the older labor working class voters. And that became reflected in the split over Brexit. And uh, that, that eventually I think led to the uh, labor having its worst vote since 1935, uh, because by uh, rejecting uh, Brexit, they in, in effect rejected a lot of their old constituencies. And while those constituencies didn't percentage-wise make up uh, a large part of the party, they made up about two-thirds of the seats that the Labor Party controlled. So, you know, they ceded uh, those to the, to the, uh, to the Tories. Um, part of it, I mean, part of it involved, again, I think something that you see in the United States, which is, uh, a rejection of patriotism and nationalism, a lack of pride in country. Um, when I went to the Labor Party conference in Brighton uh, last fall, I was amazed to, to hear people denounce their own country. I, I mean, blame Britain for, the, uh, for climate change because it, it was the first country to have an industrial revolution. It just left me sort of scratching my, my head 
And that's the kind of appeal that uh, has, you know, maybe 10%, 15% of the population uh, can, can support. But for a lot of people, it's just, and especially for labor's old, older constituency, it completely alienated them. So I think that they had similar, uh, they had similar problems maybe to the, the Democrats had in 2016 with the, with the uh, Clinton campaign. I'm gonna break here. And, and save my other questions for part two. We'll be back with part two next Monday, so be sure to keep an eye out on your feed. I'm Nick Lemon. Thank you for listening.